Is monogamy still monogamy when it's modern monogamy? Welcome to Answers News for Monday, September 25th, 2023. Hello, I'm Brian Osborne, joined by Jessica DeFord and Patricia Angler. We're here on Answers News, by the way. Jessica DeFord has a new last name because she just got married. Just got that. married. Yeah. yeah, congratulations. Whoa. Thanks. There's even feedback. Yep. Yeah. Everybody's so Claps excited. Claps from about the AV. <laughs> All right, we're going to cover a lot of articles today, in particular, look at how the secularists are trying to redefine marriage in, a, in their latest attempt. That'll lead to our very first article, which will be this one, which is, what is monogamy anyway? If I can find it here, we'll back up just for a second. And there it goes. All right. What is modern monogamy? Why is it a fit for some couples? So what is modern monogamy? That is our first article today. Well, essentially, it's not monogamy, in short. They start off the article this way. In so many relationship structures out there, they reflect diverse needs, desires, and expectations. As a society, we've begun to talk about the fact that not everyone wants to be in a monogamous relationship, and it might not make everyone happy. And so it's time for us to broaden and redefine what monogamy actually is. And so essentially what they're going to argue for here is that in modern-day monogamy, it doesn't mean marriage with kids, with a white picket fence, all those sorts of things. Modern monogamy can mean you can be with one person for a period of time, like a chapter in your life. And then once you reach the end of that chapter, once you think your feelings have changed, your perspective has changed, you are entitled to move on to another person who fits who you are now, who fits your needs best at this particular time. So you can move on from one relationship to another uh, utterly just redefining monogamy and, of course, undermining the biblical understanding of what marriage and family actually should look like. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's, re- it's really a mockery of God's design of the Institute of Marriage, and God's Word says that it is between a, a man and a woman, too. And then God also says what God has joined together, let not man separate. So we don't see the idea of jumping from relationship to relationship with God's ordained idea of what marriage is in that original design, which is a good design. And so it's just a mockery of that institute of love and marriage that God has put in place. And God is love, and he is the arbiter of love as we read in his word too. And 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God sending his son is the ultimate standard of what love is and dying on the cross for us for our sin. So we see that laid out in God's word, as whereas here it's just a mockery of that, jumping from relationship to relationship, and really it's an exaltation of the self and whatever makes you happy. Yeah, that's really a huge theme you see in this Mm -hmm. article. So there's this whole assumption going on that what is right is what makes you happy, and what is right morally is what causes the most happiness for the most people. It's an idea called utilitarianism that leads to all kinds of problems. Um, so one of the lines here is that as a society, uh, we've begun to talk about the fact that not everyone, wants, uh, not everyone wants to be monogamous and that it might not make everyone happy. Um, so this idea that feelings are the authority for truth. But there's two really big uh, problems that come up with this besides the fact that, as you're saying, it's making a mockery of God's very good design and the pattern that Jesus uh, set for what love is that then Paul talked about um, uh, marriage to be a pattern of uh, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. So um, two of the things that happens is basically one marriage is being viewed as transient and soluble. So this really sets society up to be um, vulnerable to things like totalitarianism. If you look back at the Russian Revolution, you find that when they came to power, when the communists came to power, they actually started putting laws in place to try to make divorce as as easy as possible, marriage as transient as possible. That helps break down the family unit, which is a stable um, pillar of social stability. That sounds familiar, by the way. 
Sounds familiar. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, Make yeah, things, easy, right? things so that are forth. going on right now, exactly, mm -hmm. and this is part of that, this idea that relationships can be soluble and transient. So then the second thing is making happiness the highest priority also makes society more vulnerable to things like totalitarianism because you're basically training people uh, to choose happiness, comfort, and convenience above all else, including freedom, rights, and personal convictions. So two ways that this type of thinking, which this therapist who wrote the article is advocating for, actually makes society more vulnerable to manipulation and totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. And it really starts with Disney. <laughs> if I can just say, what's the major theme of every Disney movie? Mm -hmm. Follow your heart. Yep. Follow your feelings. You don't know, you don't, if you don't know what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to act, what you should do in this moment, just look inside and find truth within yourself and then that you'll find your meaning and your identity when nothing could be further from the truth. We don't find our identity and purpose in ourselves. We find it in someone else, which is ultimately God and in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so it really is just a turning on its head of what is actually real and what is actually true. And there's one line here that says this from the article. Sometimes to remain compatible with someone throughout a lifetime, we stop ourselves from growing and changing. And of course, in the progressive mindset and the secular mindset, we must always be progressive and change. We must be progressing towards this liberal uh, utopian ideology. We'll get there someday if we keep just pursuing our truth and following our heart. And what is so sad about that is truly when you try to follow your heart, the Bible says your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And if we follow our sinful inclinations, it leads to brokenness and death. Mm -hmm. If you actually want to find out who you truly are, you die to self. You commit to Christ. And in Christ, you find your true identity, you find true purpose, and you find true happiness and joy in that relationship. Apart from that, what you get is death. And so, so to me, what is so sad here, what's being advocated for here, is under the guise of, hey, find fulfillment, find happiness. But what this really leads to is death and brokenness. Yep. And it also says modern monogamy does not mean leaving the instant things get difficult, always looking for something better, making our partners feel like they are on probation. Well, why does any of that matter in this modern definition of yeah. monogamy? It doesn't. And doesn't it really mean just that? I mean, this modern definition that you can leave anytime you want. Anytime this chapter is done in my life, I can move on from you to someone else. And then also, and you guys can speak to this more authoritatively since you're a little bit younger than I am, but with younger generations, we see anxiety at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. And I would argue one of the main reasons for that is because there's no foundational stability. Yep. Nowadays, you can't be sure about anything. You have to define everything for yourself. Your identity, your sexuality, your sexual orientation, your gender, you have to figure all that out. There's nothing actually rock solid in your life. And now on top of that, they're being told, hey, every relationship does not have a sure foundation. It can change at a moment's notice. Mm -hmm. How, un I mean, how uncertain and unsteady that would be yep. and cause a high level of anxiety, I would think. It very, yeah, very much so. Uh, speaking from a personal experience too, I was, I was raised in a broken home and my parents were separated when they were little and it did cause a lot of instability in the home. So it's unfortunate when things like that happen. Absolutely. Just a reminder that God uh, created marriage as a good design for a good reason. And when we uh, try to rebel against that, thinking that we're, we'll somehow get to some new state of happiness, that is a deception. And when we fall for it, we end up um, destroying ourselves in the process. Absolutely. And that's a good transition over to the next article as well we're looking at today. And that is a study looking at gender, sexual orientation, and religion 
among American college students. So this is an article written by a guy named Ryan Burge, and he looks at some research done by an organization called FIRE, which is Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And from my understanding, this organization basically looks at trends on college campuses and looks at what's, uh, looks at really freedom of speech. And so what sort of ideas are being attacked on in our culture on college campuses? Are students, do they have freedom of expression? Do they not? And looking at some details and doing some research and finding out more information on that. And some of their research has taken them to look at issues of gender, sexuality, sexual orientation, but really all under the bigger title of looking at, do you truly have free speech today in our culture on these college campuses? But the author of this article took their research and he focused on these areas of gender, sexual orientation, and religion. What do college students think about these things today, and do they feel free to express their views on college campuses today on these particular issues? So that's kind of general what's happening here with the particular article. And it's a pretty good sample size. It's mm -hmm. almost 40,000 college students, 25 and under, who are polled on this to get their opinions on this. And so we're going to look at multiple of the, of the surveys they did to get their thoughts on this and kind of make some conclusions from those observations. Yeah, so they asked a series of questions like, which of the following genders do you most identify with? Um, what is your sexual orientation? Um, things like that are the questions that, the types of questions that they asked. Um, and then they also note too that it doesn't mean that some of the, these students could have been born with male genitalia and now identify as women. So they can't account for that in the original questions that they were asking for the survey. So we don't know that going into the survey either. But Right, because actually uh, over 98% identified as either male or female, yeah. even though they had seven gender options to pick from, including like prefer right not now. to say. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. So the vast majority did identify as one or the other, which was kind of interesting. Um, the article even pointed out uh, only one in a hundred Christians specifically does not um, identify either as male or female. Mm -hmm. It's like there are only two options. <laughs> and people kind of, yeah, and People intuitively that. know that because we're made in God's image, of course. So that was one of the questions. And another question is, what is your sexual orientation? And 71% said straight, 12% said bisexual, and then you get gay and lesbian, 5% underneath that, and keeps going down and down amongst many other possibilities. There. And there are lots of good... Lots of possibilities offered to them in the survey, but uh, over two-thirds profess to be quote-unquote straight heterosexual, and then it kind of deviates from there, which is, a, I would, in one sense, it's kind of a high number in our current cultural climate, but also I bet that number has gone down a lot in the last 10, 20, or 30 years. If you did this poll back in the 80s and 90s, I'd be guessing 80, 90% would be saying straight, and it's probably going down a whole lot in these past couple of decades based on the push of this ideology. Uh, and other questions like, what is your sexual orientation? This is done by male or female. So the men and the women. It's interesting, uh, women, less of them profess to be straight than compared to men. Maybe there are multiple factors involved in that. Uh, but around 8% of males profess to be straight on college campuses, around 67% of females. And so, and then all underneath that, the different uh, deviations we see in our culture today. But we see some general trends in all this. And then what about this data right here, Patricia? Right, so sexual orientation and gender identity of college students. So one of the things that I really found um, interesting, I think it might be on the next slide as well, is that they're uh, showing by religion um, yep. what your orientation is. So as you can see, um, overall it was 72% identified as straight, uh, but then if you start to break that down by what people identify as in terms of the religion, within Protestants it was 84%, so only a little bit higher actually than the general culture at large. But then when you go down to uh, atheists and agnostics, 
diagnostics were the lowest at 53 to 55%. So it just shows you um, really what an impact worldview has and how that uh, translates to all kinds of other lifestyle decisions. And that, I thought, was just a good reminder of how Christians, especially uh, young people, need biblical answers. Um, we need discipleship from churches on what does the Bible say about gender and about marriage and about orientation and all of that type of thing. Because if churches are trying to shy away from these issues, um, the kids are going to get discipled by something else. And it's definitely not going to be a godly influence. And that is what the data is showing. Yeah, and that's something we really need to take, a, take to heart, parents and grandparents, is that we need to be about the business that God has called us to of discipling our children and our grandchildren. If we don't, as Patricia just said, the world will, and they will push their ideology, and it is destructive, and it's meant to be destructive on purpose to lead to different things. And so we've got to be active in, in doing work until we are called home or Christ comes back in equipping our kids to stand and defend uh, against these attacks that's happening on so many levels in our culture today. Some of the other things we put up here, you notice here, looking at different religions. So they factored in a religion on a couple of these questions as well. Do you identify as man or woman? And most of the major religions, they do identify as either male or female, as we saw in the uh, previous data before. And then again, again, based on those who identify as straight, again, based on the religion, same things there. But the overall takeaway is there is an attack on biblical marriage, biblical sexuality, biblical sexual orientation. Be ready and equip your kids to be ready to deal with that because it's happening front and center in our culture today. Mm-hmm. But moving away from that, and I'm more than glad to move away from these sorts of things. Let's talk about this. Study finds human-driven mass extinction is eliminating entire branches of the tree of life. I retitled this our weekly installment of Humans Are the Worst. Which I'm telling if you watch Answers News at all, at least once per show, we'll have at least one of these articles that basically says that, that we are causing climate change, that we are causing extinction of plants and animals on the planet. It's all our fault. And so we need to basically go away or be reduced greatly in number, which is essentially what's happening, what's being argued in this particular article. But basically in this article, it says this, that it starts off this way. The passenger pigeon, the Tasmanian devil, the Yangtze River dolphin, uh, these are amongst the best-known recent victims of what many scientists have declared the sixth mass extinction as human actions are wiping out vertebrate animal species hundreds of times faster than they would otherwise disappear. And so our actions are causing things to go extinct. Now, what's unique to this article is that they're saying it's not just our actions causing species to go extinct, but now it's one level higher. We're causing causing, uh, genuses or or genera to be extinct, to become extinct. And so that's a whole nother level because your species, genus, family, order keeps going up to bigger categories. And so we are causing whole branches of the evolution tree to go extinct. And they're saying this is a really big problem. Yeah, they're calling it biological annihilation. And so they're talking about people as being the ultimate cause for this and the destruction of these genuses. And they're really advocating for humans being a blight on the earth and saying that we kind of need to restore the earth into a situation or a a scenario in which humans are not touching the earth, in which there's a pristine uh, environment for the earth. And this is really rooted in uh, Malthusianism. So Thomas Robert Malthus was an English economist in the 1700s and he advocated for population reduction reduction because he believed that 
um, it was influencing resource consumption, that we would run out of resources with an increase in population of people, so he advocated for reducing people. And Paul Ehrlich, who happens to be a researcher on this um, particular article here, or the article that this, um, or the research that this article is based on, he wrote a book in the 1980s called Population Bomb, where he advocated for Malthusianism, which was the reduction of population of people. And so I wasn't surprised at all to see that influence here in this research with reduction of people and people being the root cause and problem because he advocates for Malthusianism. And so this practice of Malthusianism has been um, adopted by a lot of environmental groups, a lot of ecologists, and we see that influenced in the fact that they do believe that humans are just a blight on the earth. Um, but that's very antithetical to what God's word says when he tells us that we need to be fruitful and to multiply. And then also, it's an elevation of planet above people rather than people above planet. And God's word tells us that we are to um, see all people as image bearers of Christ. And then also, we're supposed to exercise dominion over God's creation, right? We're to subdue it, we're to take care of it, not in a way that is going to be lackadaisical or nonchalant, but we're to approach it in a way that brings honor and glory to God in the way that we care for it, in the way that we cultivate it, in the way that we exercise that dominion. There you go, so well said. And this whole yep. idea of putting um, planet over people, as you said, is really based on this evolutionary worldview that humans are just um, happenstance and we're really not more special than any other species, yeah. unlike what God's word says. That worldview doesn't give you a foundation for even even valuing human life, first of all, but really any life. Um, right. So basically, why would you even care about stewarding other right. species when all of it is just an evolutionary accident? Um, evolution might give you some some motivation for preserving other species if they can help your survival, but in the end, none of it even matters. So it's actually the Bible that gives us a foundation for caring for other species and stewarding the earth well. That's right. But when you start with these long age ideas, that's also what gives you um, just this whole uh, framework of thinking because if you have these long ages, then that's the scale that you're looking at thinking human, um, uh, human changes causing catastrophes on. And what's yep. really funny though, is that even within that long age perspective, um, most mass extinctions within an evolutionary worldview happened years before humans, before they think humans even existed. So that's why they only looked at the last million years, because if they'd focused on all the mass extinctions before that, it, their would data that be wouldn't work. inconvenient truth? Something like that. See what you <laughs> did there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You see their their influence of, of believing that humans are a blight in the quotes that they uh, quoted from the authors. It says the size and growth of the human population, the increasing scale of its consumption, and the fact that the consumption is very inequitable are all major parts of the problem. The author said. So they are definitely viewing people as a, a blight on the earth. Well, inequitable right. towards who? Right. Other life forms because yep. we're just we're equated. We're yep. no, we're, we're we are worth no more than a fern or a crab or mm -hmm. a cockroach. Yep. We're all life, so have same value, so we need equitable distribution of resources to all different forms of life on the planet. Yeah. Of yep. course, as you guys already said, we steward well, of course, to God's glory, but humans are the only ones made in God's image. Yeah. And it's interesting, there bar as you read the article, so many similar articles, as you guys already pointed out, there's such moral outrage. There really is. I mean, these people are writing this. They're upset at humans, at what we're doing to the planet. They're so upset. My question to them, as you already kind of alluded to, why are you so upset? Right. To say that we should or should not do something implies there's a moral absolute, but in their worldview, there is no God. Morality is relative. Why should I or should I not do any one particular thing? It's all based on my personal preference. And who are you to judge and dictate my personal preference? That's intolerant, bigoted, and hateful of you. I'm I'm canceling you right now. That's oh, it. man. Right? So good. Yeah. Because, you, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. No, that's Sorry. what they're doing. Okay, well, if you notice, like, also in the first line of the original study, this is what 
this is the direction that they want to go based on this. They're saying uh, such mutilation of the tree of life and the loss of biodiversity, basically, is a serious threat to the stability of civilization. It's a very alarmist uh, speech here. Immediately, uh, immediate political, economic, and social efforts of an unprecedented scale are essential if we are to rent these extinctions and their societal impacts. So uh, you see in other contexts, too, a paper um, published in, oh, I, I believe it was a, a Harvard or Cambridge or one of those, one of those higher uh, presses as well, um, calling for actual authoritarian responses to yep. uh, what they consider climate change. You can actually see that back in um, writings by neo-Marxists back in, in the last century as well. They were trying to use uh, the environmental movement to push political revolution. So, What are you saving the planet for or the climate for if you don't care about people or you don't believe in human flourishing? That's right. And from the totalitarian perspective, it's all about power for them. Mm -hmm. That's why it seems to be shifting with that sort of request at the end. And that transitions perfectly into talking about bacupot and bivalves. Does it? In no way, shape, or form does it. But anyway, Your no segue. Your long-standing question finally <laughs> answered. I know you all have been dying about uh, wondering what paved uh, the extinction of the oysters and the clams. Long-standing question for who is my question. Like, who's been asking this? Did you stay up late, late, late last night thinking about Actually, what yes. happened to the oysters and the no. clams and the brachiopods? <laughs> I don't understand. And so basically, in short, in the article they're looking at, it's interesting, you see this transition from more dominance of brachiopods in the fossil record to bivalves. These are different kind of shell creatures like oysters, clams, and so forth. And there is a clear transition, no doubt about that. There's a shift from these shellfish, from brachiopods, also called, often called lamp shells, to the bivalve species, which are oysters and clams. And so they think this transition in their dating occurred roughly 250 million years ago at the end of the Permian mass extinction. So they're trying to figure out what conditions cause that? What can we learn from that? Why have the oysters taken over? What's going on here? And they are pretty disturbed about all this. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me was they're talking about um, basically like right before the Triassic time, so millions and millions of years ago within their thinking, saying that there's this huge mass extinction and then some of these dynamics between clams and brachiopods are happening during that time and kind of a recovery from that time. So then there's this, um, this, this interesting line where they're referring to this devastating end Permian mass extinction with which effectively reset evolution, uh, life came back from the brink and it came back from almost being annihilated um, and understanding just how life could come back from near annihilation uh, is this big question in evolution. So they're talking about this mass extinction and life was almost annihilated way before humans within their worldview, which kind of goes contrary to the last article we looked at that was like, humans are going to destroy everything and then nothing will be able to come back. So Biological annihilation was the word that they used in that other article. That's yeah. right. right. It was already happening in the age of the clams. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, and also, too, the, the flood and the, uh, oh, man, I can't say catastrophe. <laughs> catastrophe that we saw with the flood, too, provides a consistent explanation for some of the changing climate and environment that we have seen that's talked about here in this article and why those bivalves were able to withstand some of that over the um, other uh, shell uh, clam um, brachiopod um, one. So it, God's word says that the fountains of the great deep burst forth in Genesis 7:11. This would have caused massive upheavals in our Earth's um, system and also the geology of the Earth too. And so there would have been a lot of volcanic activity, which would have caused a lot of hot magna, which would have warmed the oceans. And they talk about that specifically here, that those bivalves were likely able to survive some higher ocean temperatures. And we see that consistently provided in what we see with the flood and those changing environments, which eventually led to the ice age as well. So 
So when you start with the Bible, the science makes sense. Yes, yep, God put go. the necessary DNA within the original kinds to be able to withstand and adapt to changing environments and climates. That's right. And at the very end, they say this, I think it's the last statement on the last paragraph, they said, understanding just how life came back from near annihilation and then set the basis for modern ecosystem is one of the big questions in macroevolution. I'm sure we haven't said the last word here, though. So they can't figure it out, and they never will within their particular paradigm. They've got the wrong assumptions about history, therefore they're getting the wrong conclusions. They really need the right foundation starting with God's word, then they can understand the, word, understand the world rightly and have better understanding and conclusions. There you go. But that's your bivalves and your oysters and your clams and brachiopods <laughs> for the day. You're welcome. Now you All can right? sleep at night. Yeah. You can sleep <laughs> Problem at night. Solved. Problem solved. <laughs> and moving on. Ontario School District walks back equity-based initiative to remove pre-2008 books from libraries. And this is from Patricia's homeland of Canada, which seems to be just going more and more insane, but we're falling right behind, no doubt about that. But basically, there's an initiative put forth by the ministry, Minister of Education, Stephen uh, Lache, who said we need to either reduce, analyze, or take out books written before 2008 if they are not basically woke enough. If they are not inclusive, they don't have equity-based ideology, woke ideology, they need to be removed or at least restricted within different libraries and schools. And so many libraries began removing these books. Students were going to their schools, their school libraries, and most of the books were gone, or over half the books were gone. Like, what in the world? So there's a great kind of outcry pushing back against this, but they're literally removing books, even books like Anne, the book by Anne Frank's The Diary of a Young Girl, books like that, or The Very Hungry Caterpillar, that was removed as well because you know how bad that book is. So those books had to go because they don't support the secular leftist ideology, the wokest ideology. And to me, if you ever read the book 1984, this is what it sounds like, 1984. And then, Patricia, you've got a lot of research in Marxism and these sorts of things, and so I'll let you dive into this one. Yeah, well, reading about this, it really reminded me of something that I'd read. There's a guy uh, back in the 60s, a psychiatrist named Robert Lifton, and he interviewed all these people who had survived communist prison camps because he was really trying to understand totalitarianism and specifically what are the hallmarks of brainwashing environments when totalitarian regimes try to break down the old worldview and the old system of thinking and instill a new one of their own making. So he identified eight hallmarks and five of them just like perfectly check off what you see going on in these Ontario schools. So here they are. Uh, the first one was he, what, we, what he called milieu control, so censoring what information people can access, share, and think about, check. Second was what he called a plea for purity, so uh, redefining morality as conformity to a certain agenda, agenda or ideology, so check, redefining morality, that was actually the third. Um, and then cult of confession, so this is creating a culture that's obsessed with confessing breaches of that morality. So basically, in this case, oh, well, we're not being uh, inclusive enough. We need to repent and confess and then um, get rid of all the books that aren't uh, matching that. Uh, fifth was what he called the sacred science. So this idea that there's this unquestionable truth, which is some sort of human idea, which you're setting up as the sacred science that nobody else can question. So check. And then finally, loaded uh, using loaded language. So. Um, changing language in a way that promotes the, the sacred science, the ideology, and silences argument. So his example, this is from over 50 years ago, was calling people who agree progressive and people who disagree oppressive. <laughs> Again, check. So that, uh, that's pretty telling, and it shows you what's going on here. And it's also um, telling that they're targeting young people specifically, because young people are going to be society's next uh, decision makers, which is why you see in the past regimes targeting this group as well. Yeah, there, I think uh, Tom er er Ehlard is a founder of Libraries Not Landfills who was um, advocating against this. And I think he hit the nail on the head with a quote that they have here for him. He says, who's the arbiter of what's the right material to go in the library? And who's the arbiter of what's wrong 
belong in our libraries? That's unclear. And so that's who is the arbiter to tell who, what can go in the libraries and what's not. There's no objective standard there with what they're deciding to do. And when you reject the biblical authority, you reject the biblical standards for sexuality and gender and so forth, then who becomes the authority? By default, it must be man. And whichever man is in power can try to enforce that particular view, which is happening in Canada and more and more in America as well. Which is why so often we say that we need to be sure that we are ourselves standing on biblical authority and in challenging those around us who are Christians to stand on biblical truth from the beginning and also challenging the non-believer they have faith as well they're putting their faith in man's ideas we're putting our faith in God's word calling the repentance to faith in Christ rooted in God's word and of course challenging them with that foundational understanding not just the symptom area we go to the foundation of the argument which is the authority issue God's word versus man's ultimately is what it is every single time and speaking of that it even gets to our cartoons like this one Nickelodeon hires radical LGBTQ activists to create a non-binary character for Paw Patrol spinoff. And so Nickelodeon's Rubble and Crew will include a non-binary character designed by pro-abortion transgender consultant Lindsay Amir and voiced by a non-binary actor. And so basically, it's only for one episode we have this new non-binary uh, character introduced to this Rubble or this Paw Patrol spinoff called Rubble and Crew. And the person, uh, Lindsay Amir, has written a book called Raising Queer Kids and incorporates queer theory. She uses the, them pronouns because that's not confusing. And they wanted a non-binary character that was aspirational and incredibly cool in this Paw Patrol spinoff. And so there's a show we do here at the ministry called Tilt Shift where me and Tim Chafee and other speaker look at movies from a biblical worldview. And a phrase we use all the time is watch what you watch. And I encourage you to watch what your kids watch because everything you watch has a message. Everything you watch, every commercial, every show, every video, every movie has an ideology they are evangelistic for and want you to agree with. They are trying to convert you to their particular view in big ways and in little ways. This is an example of one of the little ways. But this Amir also has a YouTube channel dedicated to talking to kids three years old and older about sexuality. One video is titled, What's an Abortion Anyway? For your three-year-old. That's who's writing this particular episode of Rubble and Crew and that new character. Absolutely. And this whole idea of like sexualizing kids from a young age, man, that ties really well into yep. some of this neo-Marxism stuff we're talking about. So it was popularized by, back by Sigmund Freud, uh, the psychoanalyst, um, 20th century. And then it was really latched onto by neo-Marxists who um, were basically saying that society is like oppressed and oppressing groups. So oppressed groups uh, would include, um, say, LGBTQ community. Oppressors would include Christians within this line of thinking. Yep. And then uh, the family they consider as a unit of oppression. It basically perpetuates... Um, oppression, it perpetuates the old system that needs to be overthrown. You have to destabilize society. A great way to do that is to sexualize young people specifically. Uh, helps break down the family unit, helps um, uh, just deconstruct those, those family ties, makes kids uh, question their identities, so then they'll be starting to be discipled by activists instead of by, by their parents as well. And it reminds me of a quote that I found by a, in a declassified document from the CIA back in 1963. They were studying uh, some, some communist youth leagues. And they said, all the modern governments which are aiming at the total reorganization of the existing society and at political domination have considered it a matter of very special importance to win a total hold on the youth. One way to do that is through media. I'm reminded of a book um, called Faith for Exiles. Barna researchers put it out in 2019, and one of their key findings was that screens disciple. Yep, mm. it's sacrificing that's, children that's on true. the altar of entertainment, basically. And there's this last quote to the article where this parent is saying, it feels cruel to take away Paw Patrol from my kids. 
But what's more cruel is confusing my kids about their gender and introducing them to an ideology that encourages innocent children to medically alter their bodies in irreversible ways. And that is so true. Be sure you're watching what your kids watch and be sure you're discipling your kids and your grandkids and not screens or the secular ideology around us. And then we'll quickly go to the last article for the day. Just quickly at a glance, looking at this one. Mystery of living fossil tree fossil or living fossil tree frozen in time for 66 million years finally solved. So this is the Wallamy pine tree over in Australia. It's called a living fossil because they thought it went extinct a long time ago. It has a particular form and shape to it. And when they found a living version of it, they thought it was gone. There it is. It was the exact same basically as the fossilized version. There was no change from past to present. Makes sense in the biblical worldview, right? It hasn't been that long. Trees take trees. Wallamies take wallamies in general. Variation, of course, within that kind. But fits. The, the evolutionary worldview, this is a shock. How can I say the same for 66 million years or even 2 million years? So they're trying to figure that out. When I was in Australia a few years ago for a few months, I actually took a picture of a living wallamie pie tree. Wallamie pie tree right there. I should have got in the picture. Anyway, there's a tree anyway. <laughs> I was there. I took the picture, I promise. But uh, it's just variation adaptation, right? Yep. That's right. Yep. And uh, they're talking a lot about uh, mutations being a part of this and how actually the uh, tree's genetics are not too good right now because they think they have so many mutations in there. But how does that fit within evolution? I thought mutations were supposed to like promote evolution. Yep. That's what, according to evolutionary ideology, it does. And as Brian was talking about too, it's hard to explain from an evolutionary worldview why we would see um, these little change in these living fossils over a long period of time. But the biblical worldview provides a consistent explanation for why we would see minor changes that would be thousands of years, not millions of years. And so we see fossils laid down, uh, the majority of fossils laid down from the flood too. And so that's evidenced in God's word in the biblical worldview. And so we would expect to see these minor changes within created kinds as God's word describes that he created all the animals according to their kinds. Right. And we've got some more resources. If you want to dive deeper into any of these issues, like replacing Darwin over there on the far left, so many more online, looking at mutational rates, variation, adaptation. What do we actually see with real observations, with real science? It confirms the Bible again and again, spoiler alert, it's a powerful refutation of evolution in a really vivid way. I so encouraged that book. And then, of course, today we covered a bunch of social issues what about the gender and marriage issue, what about answers to social issues like climate change and stuff like that. We have so many books and resources online. You can dive into articles for free on the website, answersandgenesis.org. we got a whole books coming out on Marxism. This one right here is writing that really good so far. I've been reviewing it really well done. I'm so excited for that book to come out. Jessica, you got one on climate change, yep. so-called, coming out soon. So more to come. It's going to be awesome. Loving that. Keep your eyes open for those particular resources. And another couple other quick announcements before we wrap up. First of all, we're taking some pretty exciting trips. So this one, I think you're on, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah tell Lord, us about it. Lord willing, I'll get to go to the Galapagos Islands. So we're doing this in May 28th to June 7th. So registration is open. We're going to spend some time in the Galapagos Islands in the breeding ground of Darwinian evolution, a lot of it. So we're going to be doing some teaching, talking about um, things from a biblical worldview, and then in a beautiful place where we get to see God's creation. So I would encourage you to register. Yeah, definitely check that out. And then also there's another trip, another excursion. Uh, it's called Digging for Dinosaur Bones. This will be over in Glendive, Montana. This will be July of 2024. And me and Roger Patterson are going on that particular trip, digging up actual dinosaur bones, making casts, doing talk about dinosaurs. It's going to be an incredible time. I'm so excited about that. You can go to creationmuseum.org, go to the Explore section. You'll find more information on those things. And then we have so many resources to help you and your family and your church. Answers, Bible, Curriculum. I know I'm biased, but it is absolutely incredible. It goes through the Bible chronologically, gives you good apologetics teaching,
teaching as you go through. It focuses on the gospel, the scarlet thread of the gospel throughout biblical history, the fans of faith. Uh, it it's, makes the Bible come alive in so many fantastic ways. Got it for Sunday school and homeschool. Be sure you check that out. Also, the digital version of that coming out as well. Some of the great resources. Go to answersandgenesis.org to find out more about those things. But guys, we've been so glad you are here. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.